0: 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll read verses 8 through 12 and um, look to the Lord to hear from Him, hear what He has for us, what He would have us to know and to grow in. 1 Peter 3 verses 8 through 12, Peter writes, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Father, we pray that Your face would be shining upon us, Lord, with the blessing of Your presence, God, with Your eyes open to us, Your ears open to us, and not Your face directed at us in righteous judgment, Father. We pray that Your grace and Your mercy would be made evident, Lord, and that Your truth would reign in us in love for Your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, welcome back to 1 Peter. It's been a few weeks since we looked at what the Lord has to say to us in this letter from Peter, and I wanted to just hit a couple of highlights. Um, as we get started, just to reorient ourselves in this letter, just to find out where we've been and, and kind of remember how we got to this point in verses 8 through 12 as we read them together. Uh, this is kind of like one of those uh, continuing shows, and, and this is the previously on First Peter. <laughs> this is what we've looked at. We've, we've been away for five weeks. And so, in verses 1 through 12 of, uh, of chapter 1, Peter writes to elect exiles, that's uh, us, people who used to belong exclusively to this world, but now we belong to the Lord. We have a new inheritance, a a new kind of inheritance, because we've been born again, born anew. And we know that this was written for a specific people at a specific time, but it applies to us today. This is what the Lord's Word is for us, and it causes an essential break between us and the people around us. We now have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have God's great mercy poured out on us to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's a perfect inheritance, and it will always be perfect. That's what we have to look forward to in the future. And it comes to us not by working really hard for it, but by faith, through faith. Faith that does not physically see Jesus, but believes in Him, and the, the kind of faith that rejoices with inexpressible joy, the, the kind of faith that is filled with glory through any and all kinds of trials and problems and troubles that come along. It's a, it's a faith that's priceless. It's, a, it's an unsurpassed value and glory kind of faith that was foretold by prophets and angels' wish. They only wish they could experience this kind of faith that you and I have from the Lord. Well, after setting that up as our inheritance for the future, Peter then turns his attention to our present state. Our future eternal state is with God and glory, that perfect inheritance. But from now until then, we are growing holy practically through the Word of God. That's verses 13 of chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. And so our minds are going to be prepared, ready for action, sober, and hoping fully on God's grace, because this world is going to do everything it can to try to pull us back down into what the world is like. It's going to try to strip us of our hope. It's going to drag us back into disobedience to our Master, our Lord, Jesus Christ. And so we prepare our minds to battle that. We set our purpose on our new purpose, our new hope, and the new reason for for being here, the restored reason of bringing glory to God by living a holy life. So rather than fearing man, we fear God rightly. We constantly remember and we constantly remind one another that we have been ransomed from these futile things in the world. We don't depend on anything here that's temporary. We don't hope on anything here because we've been purchased out of that. And that ransom came at the cost of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, His blood, His life for ours. His blood that cleanses us and and saves us and ransoms us. Our Savior is the one who existed before the foundation of the world, Peter says. He has glory from God Himself, and so our faith, our hope are in God Himself. That's what Peter says in chapter 1, almost closing that out. You know, that means if God could fail, then our hope would fail. If God could fall or falter or stumble, then our faith and our hope could falter or stumble. But since God never fails and our hope is in Him, our hope never falls or falters or stumbles. All of this is available to us through the also never perishing, always remaining Word of God. Amen? Everything else will wither and fall, but the Word of the Lord remains forever, Peter says. That's the Word of God, the Word of the gospel that was preached to us. So praise God for all of His Word to save us and to keep us. And as Peter finishes this second section, he teaches us to remove sinful hearts and actions in chapter 2, verse 1. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely in a minute. But he teaches us to grow in the Word. And as we do, we are growing together into a temple, a complete temple with sacrifices and priests who offer up spiritual sacrifices to God with Jesus Himself as our head, as our cornerstone, our strength. And now because we're joined together in Christ, we are a new people and we have a new purpose, proclaiming the excellencies of our great God who called us out of darkness, as we sang this morning, into His marvelous light. We who were in darkness have been called into God's light, and so we constantly live and proclaim the excellence of God, not ourselves. It's all for His glory. And that brought us to the third section of Peter's letter. That first section was encouraging us to persevere, In the second, he taught us how to grow holy through the Word. Now, in this third section, we've been learning what it looks like to grow holy in the world. What does it look like as we live here in this world still? started in chapter 2, verse 11. It's going to go through chapter 4, verse 19. But we've seen what it looks like to be holy in various stations of life different spheres that we exist in, in relation to the government. No matter what kind of government we have, it looks like submission, subjection is part of God's will to silence those who don't know what they're talking about as they berate us, as they slander us. We've seen what holiness looks like at work, whether we have a really good boss or a really terrible boss who's really unjust. The perfect example of Jesus was described so that we can follow that in submitting or subjecting ourselves to the boss. Remember, we've been called to holiness and doing good no matter what happens, that, um, that we are enduring, and that's what pleases God. When we're doing good, we're, we're living the holy life, we're, we're living the way He called us to live, and when we're doing that, we're punished, we're slandered, we're, we're spoken evil against, all of those things that happen to us, when we are enduring up under that, that's what pleases God that was really good hopeful encouraging words for us because he cares for us as our shepherd as our overseer and peter shows us what holiness looks like as a wife as a husband and now here in chapter 3 verses 8 through 12 he's de- he's finishing various descriptions of holiness in life by addressing all of us as a collective whole he he addressed each of us individually in different areas now as a whole Don't lose sight of this truth that we are a collective temple of God. We're the the body of Christ. All of us together have a lot more in common than we have different because of Jesus, because of our united purpose in Jesus, glorifying Him, praising Him, and living this life of holiness. And that's what Peter is bringing home for us here in verses 8 through 12. But before we get started on it, I want to draw your attention to a specific reality that's going to come to life in these verses. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1, because Peter is going to set something up for us back here, and then he's going to come around to it here in our our verses, in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 3. Peter tells us in chapter 2, verse 1, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, those are five traits that um, may come pretty easily to us. They may come naturally to us. If you got a random group of people together and you started, uh, you put them together, you said either live together or start working together, uh, those are traits that would rise up within those groups, aren't they? You've seen those happen before in groups of people. They're natural and they happen. Malice is wicked, hateful feelings. You know, I just don't like that person. That person rubs me the wrong way. There's, there's no love, only spiteful feelings. It happens too often in workplaces or in neighborhoods. Deceit is entrapping others in their speech or actions. I'm against them. I want the worst for them, so I'm going to deceive them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lie to them. You may have been the victim of that in the past. Hypocrisy is pretense, acting friendly toward people but not really having any feelings of kindness toward them. You know, that's kind of the definition of civility in our culture, isn't it? You know, just, just be nice to people, smile and be nice, and then walk away and, and talk about them, <laughs> right? Not, not actually love people, not have any goodness or, or goodwill or kindness toward them, just be nice to their face, and then when you walk away, be a different way. That, that's the hypocrisy that we can see in so many instances around us. Envy is a sense of animosity, it's ill will toward others because it seems that they've been given an unfair advantage or they have a benefit that I don't have. And whether it's real or perceived, I just don't like them because of that. Whether it's money or privilege or fame or talent, whether it's been earned or given, I envy that person and I don't like them because of it. And again, how much does that match our culture today? And then finally, the fifth one is slander, speaking evil of people that I clearly do not love and I clearly don't want to love, and I just want to tear them down. I can't stand them, so I'll, I'll backbite them. I'll, put them down, and it's either to feel better about myself or it's just so that I can see them hurt. And how prevalent is that, if not in person, in social media, right? I mean, that almost seems like that's what social media exists for, for, for many people, is just to slander people. So Peter says, these are five traits, this is stuff that happens all the time in groups of people, but we are to put away all of that. It doesn't belong among us. And again, he shows us how to grow in our faith with the Word of God, through the Word of God. He goes on to show us what holiness looks like in various stations of life, but he doesn't tell us when we've taken those five things out and thrown them out, what to replace those five things with until we get to chapter 3, verse 8. Look at verse 8 again, and how many traits does he give us to replace those five terrible traits that happen so naturally? What does he give us to replace those? Unity of mind. Sympathy is number two, brotherly love number three, a tender heart number four, and number five, a humble mind. So As we study them, we're going to see that in every way, these five traits are going to replace and throw out those other traits, those terrible, sinful traits that we're putting off, that we're putting away. So the specific reality that I want to draw our attention to is that Scripture teaches us that God is in the business of taking away our worst and giving us His best. That's in your notes. God takes away our worst, and He gives us His best. Holiness is commanded over and over, and it's enabled by God Himself. But it only happens when we get rid of all those things that we're holding on to and clinging to inside, we get rid of all of those things, and we grab on to what He has given us, what He gives us. So he says, get rid of these five that normally characterize us. Get or put on or have these five traits that now need to characterize us in holiness. Whenever we are told by God to get rid of something, it's so that He can give us something better. And not just better, but the best. If you're told to get rid of sin, it's to make room for what God has instead. And isn't that the gospel from beginning to end, right? I mean, 2 Corinthians 5 God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, for us. This is for our sake, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus takes our sins away from us and replaces our sins with His righteousness. When we come to faith in Jesus, we replace our old leader of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We stop following Him, and we replace Him with a new leader, the Lord whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. In Christ, you replaced your destiny of eternal punishment with your destiny of endless glory. That's right. so, so God is in the business of taking away our worst and giving us His best. It's the same in our life. The same thing happens in this Christian life. That's what God is doing. So rather than those five terrible natural traits, replace it with these five. And then Peter's going to take it a step farther and add one more. In, in verse 9, He's going to give us the, immediately the, the bad that we would have and replace that with the good. So, He's going to make it six because God doesn't just give us what we are missing. He gives us above and beyond for His glory. And so, in our passage this morning, there are six features of holiness then, six features of holiness for all of us believers. In each station of life, there were specifics, but now as a whole, He's talking to all of us. That's why He uses the word finally here. He's not wrapping up the letter yet, only this discussion on holiness, what it looks like in our life. So, all of us individually and together in six features. Number one, the first one, is unity of mind. Unity of mind in verse 8, sameness, sameness of mind. So, does that mean that we have to start liking the same things? Does that mean everybody's favorite color is now red? Red right? We have to, everybody has to change their favorite color, change the way that you dress, change what you eat, drive the same kind of car. No, he doesn't mean that. There's a word for that. The word is cult. <laughs> so, no, we're not dictating to everybody your new favorite this, your new preference is that. Um, that's what you join when you buy a Mac. You, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just <laughs> so, some of you know, you can understand. no. Peter's not telling us to have the same mind. You have to be Windows or you have to be Mac or Android or Apple, whatever it is. He's not saying you have the same opinion about all of that stuff, but we have the same knowledge and the same mind about the truth that brings godliness. It's a single-minded purpose for our life individually and jointly based on the single truth of the Word of God. And what Peter is talking about here is, is 1 Corinthians 2, we have the mind of Christ. We we fall into lockstep with the mind of Christ. Not with the mind of any person. It's the facts, the truth, the love of the gospel, not the opinions or priorities of mankind. So even while we hold various opinions loosely, we're combining together in the firmness of the truth. Unity of thinking does not mean that most of us change our thinking to match one person or, you know, a group of us get together and, and all of us have to try to match that group of thinking, it means all of us change our thinking to match that of Jesus. Jesus didn't teach us we all had to dress the same way, did He? In fact, He told us don't worry about what you're going to wear in Matthew six twenty-five. He didn't tell us we need to live in extravagance or not live in extravagance. He just didn't have a place to lay His head when He was here. So, He didn't teach us what kind of house to have. What kind of possessions to have. So we can have different opinions and different tastes about things in this world, but when it comes to the priority of those things, all of us have the same mind of taking those and putting them in the far, far back seat and uniting in our minds and our thinking around the things of God where we're setting our minds on things above, Colossians 3 says, not on things here on the earth. Those opinions that divide us one from another should have no effect on our fellowship together because they're only things of this world. They're opinions on things of the world. This unity of mind is a necessary effect of the gospel on your soul. You know, before the gospel comes in, before it invades you and all of who you are, we we talk about the noetic effects of sin. That's the effect of sin on our minds. It's a devastating effect of sin on our thinking. We can't think God's thoughts. We don't have the mind of Christ, and, and all we can do is, is think about things of this world. But when the gospel comes in, it changes that. It gets rid of that, and we no longer have to sin in thought or, or word or deed or anything else. But Christians, we can still subject our minds to that old way of thinking, not thinking rightly, not thinking biblically about circumstances or life or ourselves. And that's where it's helpful to have one another, to help one another, to to bring the Word of God to us so that we can replace the bad thinking with the biblical thinking, the good thinking, right? The gospel gives us a new mind and a new way of thinking that's released from the old way of thinking about the world. If you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, because this is what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 4, verses 17 to 24. He's talking about this this new life that we have, this, this new way of thinking, and how it affects our life. In Ephesians 4, verse 17, he says, Now, this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In what? In the futility of their minds. Now, he's not saying that all unbelievers are unintelligent. He's not saying that they can't think for themselves, but they cannot think the things of God. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Again, this isn't ignorance because, you know, we're just calling everybody out there ignorant, and we're just, you know, putting everybody's mental intelligence down. That's not what he's saying, but they're thinking the things of God is not there. It's not available to them. Verse 19, they become callous, and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We can still think that way. We can still have those desires. But He says, put those off, verse 23, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see the noetic effects of sin, the, the darkening of the mind and the, and the inability to think God's thoughts and to follow God's law and to, to love Him and, and to do what He says and to, to act and speak in darkness. But then we have been given a new way of thinking, a new mind in, the, in a new life. It's created after the likeness of God. So this this new life, this new way of thinking, this new mind is a unified mind. It's unified together in the things of the Lord, in in what His Word says and what His Word teaches, and we know that that the priority for our lives is holiness. But this unity of mind does not only bring about thinking about holiness and, and unity in that, it also brings about a concern for one another. It brings about a unity and a closely knit together fellowship so that we care more about one another than we even do about ourselves. That those one another's, those, those are no strangers if you've been coming for any length of time to Canyon. The, the bookmarks, the, the, uh, the reminders, the emails, the, and the constantly talking about the one another's in Scripture, that's because the New Testament speaks about the one another's a lot of times. In fact, a hundred times in 94 verses, in the New Testament, one another, one another. Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly love. In fact, outdo one another in showing honor, Paul says there. That's, the, that's having unity of mind, a, a united purpose of glorifying God in holiness, which, which means taking care of one another, loving one another. And do you know, brother and sister, this is not a side issue for us. You know, sometimes we can hear commands from Scriptures, and we think, well, you know, maybe I'm kind of doing that, or, you know, maybe I'll get around to that, but I'm just going to ignore that for now. Jesus personally prayed this for us before He left for us. You know, again, sometimes we look at Scripture and we think, okay, well, that applies to us, you know, in a a distant way or in in a different way. No, Jesus prayed specifically for us. He said, Father, I'm praying to You, and I ask not just for these people who are here, but for those who will believe in Me through their Word. That's us. Jesus prayed for you and me in John 17. And He says that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You know, the reason that Jesus prayed, part of the reason that He prayed and the stated reason in His prayer that He wants us to be united and one together is so that the world would know that the Father sent the Son. The reverse of that is true as well. Our disunity, when we're not unified together, well, how is the world supposed to know that the Father sent the Son? How is our witness going to be of any use at all? If we want to know two of the reasons, then, that the church has been ineffective over the last few generations in reaching the lost, it's missing holiness in Christians that's supposed to identify us, including love that sets us apart and identifies us as His disciple. And missing unity. Missing unity in the church. And it starts in our minds being unified in Christ Jesus, having his mind because of the gospel. This is one of the most ignored commands in the New Testament, right? Unity. You know, we. We don't want to be unified. We want to divide up. We want to divide into different denominations. We want to divide into churches. We want, within churches, we want to divide. You know, we're the group that gets together because we like this, and we like to do that. And we're the group that gets together because we're really young, or we're really old, or we're, you know, this color, or that amount of money, or um, these interests. And we divide over all of these different things. We divide over wearing or not wearing masks, and vaccines, and public school versus homeschool. And, brothers and sisters, this is, not a, this is not a debatable command that we have a choice to obey or disobey. This is a mandatory command. It's crucial for us with our life in Christ to be united with Him and to be united for, with one another. It's crucial for the life of the church, it's crucial for our witness in this world. Now, this doesn't mean that we just dismiss all of our opinions, that we have no opinions, we take no stand on anything. But it's not allowing those stands that we've taken on things of this world to divide brothers and sisters in Christ. You can have different opinions of different matters, but if you're basing those opinions on scriptural principles and teachings, <laughs> that's where our focus needs to be. That's, that's, you know, we shouldn't divide over whether you eat Cheerios or cornflakes for breakfast, should we? That would be ridiculous. And that's just as true for anything else than this world that we would divide over something in this world, even things that have to do with faith the enemy uses to attack us and to to divide us. You think about eschatology and how much division there is in the church over when Jesus is coming back, that's supposed to be a hopeful thing, that's supposed to be an encouragement, and it splits people. You think about the Lord's Supper, you think about baptism, I mean, the two ordinances of the church that Jesus gave us, people split over those things, they divide over those things, they draw lines. People even used to argue, and this was a real debate in church history, people used to argue, how do you make the sign of the cross, you know, this, this whole thing? Do you go this way? Do you go, you go right first and then left? Do you go left? Do you use the thumb? Do you use, you know, your forefinger and your thumb? Do you use three fingers? They, they divided over that. They debated those things strongly and powerfully. You know, other people, we don't even do it, right? So... You know, it's not whether you have opinions. It's not it's not whether you take a stand on something in things of this world, but it's how important they are to you. Are you drawing a line in the sand? You know, you're either with me or against me. I had a lady tell me that um, a couple of weeks ago about an issue in this world. I want somebody on my team. Listen, sister in Christ, we're on the same team. We should be. We stand in the way of Jesus' own prayer when we're not working for unifying together. Jesus has already drawn a line around people, and and the line around us is Jesus. It's a line around us, and, and He brings us together in Him. We don't need to be creating more lines, drawing lines through the church, what God has created, what Jesus is doing in the church. And I'm talking about things from the world. There are important doctrines. There are important teachings that we don't just... You know, we need to be faithful to God's Word. We don't just ignore important issues. But we, brothers and sisters, we need to stand for the truth of the Word of God in love. We need to be known for people that stand for His Word, not for those who stand for the hot-button issue of the day. We don't invent the lines to divide people. God's already done that. So we fall within His lines, and we fall together as His body. Now, think about this from the other side as well. Who do you have unity of mind with? Is it with people who believe in the Lord Jesus? Or are you unified with people who don't even know how to spell Jesus? <laughs> I've never heard of Jesus. But we're all unified in taking a stand, right? We're going to take a strong stand here and, and do this. We need to consider who we're comfortable with. It's like Pastor Tom said last week. You know, when we're feeling more comfortable… With the world, that's a warning sign. We need to be feeling detached from the world, not part of the world, not part of the rubber rousers, right? It's a warning sign when we feel very comfortable with the world. We need to be comfortable, we need to be a part of the body of Christ. So when our mind is shaped by God and His Word, that's when we'll be like minded. Not when you start taking all my opinions or I start taking all of yours, but when we take those opinions, the things of the world, and we put them in a back seat and put the Word of God in the front seat. The Lord Himself is our guide, our cornerstone, our head. It'll be a radically different kind of like-mindedness than what the world shares. But that's part of what holiness looks like for us. And that's the first one, not dividing up into factions, but unity of mind. The second one, number two, verse eight, holiness looks like a second trait for all of us. It looks like sympathy, sympathy. This is a compound word. In the original, it literally means to suffer with. Um, it's feeling the like with one another. Um, another word is compassion, sharing the emotions of one another as we encounter life, okay? It's, it's, it's Romans twelve fifteen, rejoicing with those who rejoice and suffering, sorrowing, weeping with those who weep. It's First Corinthians 12, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. But this, is, this is feeling what your brother or sister next to you is feeling and, and going through life together. That's how much we matter to one another. I'm not uh, a dog person, I'm not really a dog person. I, we don't have a dog. Um, we probably never will have a dog. Um, we're not cat people. Either. Cats aren't pets, by the way. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <don't. laughs> I know a lot of you have cats as pets. I mean, scientifically, they're being shown to, and demonstrated that they couldn't care less about you. But, okay, cats, if you have cats, maybe you're a cat person, maybe you're a dog person. <laughs> we're not going to divide over that, right? We're, we're, we're in fellowship together. So here's where we're going with that. <laughs> when somebody loses their pet, that's a very difficult time for that person right? That, that's a sad time. It's, it's sadness and disappointment and sorrow when a pet that's close to that person or that family goes away. A normal reaction may be for us to have empathy, with, you know, especially if you're not a dog person or a cat person, to have empathy with those brothers or sisters, to, I understand the loss, I don't share the feelings, right? That's, that's a normal reaction. But brother and sister, we're not called to be normal. <laughs> we're called to sympathy, not empathy, What God calls us to here is sympathy in suffering with and and actually feeling the the feelings with our brother and sister. As they sorrow, as they experience sadness, we come alongside, and if they're crying, we're crying with them. This is how much we matter to one another, how much a a part of one another we are. This is the closeness we have together. Far from malice in chapter 2, where you want to see the person hurt, far from rejoicing over their sorrow and, and being hypocritical or being envious or slanderous or any of those things, you're suffering with them. You're so close to them. You're, you're enduring the difficult time together. And some har- sometimes they're harder than losing a pet and sometimes they're easier than losing a pet, but we're there with one another. And we're not just understanding and, you know, yeah, I got it, eh, I'm sorry you know, for your loss. No, this is, it, we're breaking down with them. It takes a, a care and a love for other people and a care that overwhelms my sense of self, my, my sense of my own comfort. I mean, when you, normally, what, it, what does it look like when you come across somebody who's crying? You're kind of uncomfortable, right? You, oh, goodness, I'm sorry for that. And, and we, our comfort says, go somewhere else. You don't want to be a part of that. They don't quite know what to do. Just make them stop crying, right? That's, that's our normal reaction. But instead of turning away, maybe maybe go up with them and and talk with them and cry with them. Feel what they're feeling and then help them and encourage them with the truth spoken in love. You know, that's what Jesus did for us. In Hebrews 4.15, He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, and yet he never sinned. Jesus is well acquainted with the sadness and the sorrow and disappointments that we will encounter. That requires a selflessness and a love that's not normal, doesn't it? One commentator said this, quote, "'One thing is clear. Sympathy and selfishness cannot coexist. As long as the self is the most important thing in the world, there can be no such thing as sympathy. Sympathy depends on the willingness to forget self.' And to identify oneself with the pains, excuse me, and sorrows of others, sympathy comes to the heart when Christ reigns there, end quote. So we put off malice. We put off hypocrisy and envy and slander and deceit. We put on sympathy. Holiness, then, is unity of mind and it's sympathy with one another. Literally, this is thinking the same way and feeling the same way. Right? That's what Peter's told us so far in chapter, chapter 3, verse 8. We're, we're thinking and feeling the same way. There's a third trait, a third characteristic here of holiness for all of us, and it's number three, brotherly love in verse 8. Notice that I haven't done anything tricky with these points. They're all just right out of the, right out of the verse. But holiness exists in our hearts, not only as we think alike and feel alike, but as a true and lasting love. That's our standard, is love, right? It can't just, well, we're all thinking and feeling the same thing, anger and bitterness. <laughs> we're all united in that. No, we're all thinking and feeling the same way in a brotherly love. This is like the love between siblings. They never stop being siblings. That's, that's the way our love is for one another. And I, I know there are exceptions, you know, my brother this or my sister that, and, you know, plenty of exceptions in the world. But what Peter calls us to here, what God tells us we need to have is a love that's even stronger than the ordinary, normal love, blood relation, connection between siblings. It's a love without limitations. It's a love that has no end. It'll do anything for someone. It'll give anything, do anything, right? It's a love that is in a belonging with and to one another. There's a belonging here that we have with one another. We belong to Jesus. We belong to one another. And so we belong with one another. We find peace, we find fellowship with one another like family that we shouldn't and cannot in reality find anywhere else. This kind of love in the Greek language was previously, it was normally used for physical, literal blood relatives, sometimes for fellow countrymen, but the New Testament took this word and made it apply to people who are complete strangers apart from Jesus. We become a close-knit family. Because've we've, we've experienced the unconditional love of God in Jesus together, he's adopted us as his own, he made us, he loved us, and so we love one another also. again, isn't there a, a complete disregarding of, of this kind of command in the church today? yeah I don't, I don't want to love people that are different from me I don't want to love I don't want to have to love people that, that don't think like I do about this topic or that subject. You know, I, I just want to like and love people that are like me. That's easy, right? First John four twenty, remember, says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love, it's, there's either love or hate for brothers, right? That's what he's, he's saying here. He who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. You know, we can't say, I love God, you know, I'll be a follower of Jesus, I just don't want to love any of those people. He says, if you're not loving His people, you're not really loving Him. Love removes all of the malice, the deceit, the hypocrisy, the envy, the slander that's in chapter 2. All that division is put away. Love covers all of that. It's rejecting all of those, all of the worst stuff that we can drum up, and it's replacing it with God's best his thoughts, his feelings, and love for one another. So, it's, it's thinking alike, it's feeling alike, it's loving alike, right? Number four, what replaces those things in chapter 2 is a tender heart in verse 8, a tender heart, you know, not callousness, not hardness. The word here in the original actually refers to the intestines, the bowels, <laughs> tender uh, intestines. They used intestines at the time rather than heart. So, the translators… Thankfully, used heart as per our language, because we would kind of question, what does that mean? But really, what what it's after here is that deep-seated affection, the the true feelings that we have for one another. It's a a genuine care. It's a genuine interest and and love of one another. You know, it's like the butterflies in our stomach when we see one another and when there's rejoicing, when we're rejoicing with one another, you know, our heart rate gets elevated. It's the deep-seated emotions that we can feel deep down. Um, when somebody's sorrowing, we're, you know, we, we feel a cramping inside, like, oh, I'm just torn up for you and with you. It's a genuine kind of care, not a, not a callousness, not a coldness. This one's really difficult in our culture. You know, if there's one thing that all of us have been vaccinated against, it's a tender heart. When someone wrongs you, what's the admired reaction? What does everybody look for? If somebody does something to you, you better get them back, right? What are you going to do to get them back? You can't just put up with that. You can't just overlook sin. You just look weak. You look like a coward, right? Somebody falls on hard times. What's the resounding chorus? You know, somebody's out there and they're on a. You just need to go get a job, right? Something bad happens to someone. Well, they probably deserved it. You know that must. They must have deserved that. They got what they what they had coming to them. Now. We know that some of those things may be true, that people need to take responsibility and work and other people need to, um, they're suffering consequences of bad decisions, things like that. But that shouldn't justify a coldness and a hard heart towards other people. Um, as we've seen, we're all one, we're part of a body together. And if a part of my body were to start hurting, if I already got a splinter in my finger and it started to hurt and it started to get red because it was getting infected, I wouldn't just cut my finger off, Right? I, well, you probably just got what you deserve, finger, because you were working on that fence and, you know, you got a splinter. That's what you deserve, right? Go find somebody else to help you, finger. <laughs> you know, we don't do that to our own bodies. The other parts of my body come together to help that finger. You know, I'm, I'm going to use the other parts of my body to pull out that splinter and, and maybe put some cream on it to help it, the infection go away, maybe cover it up, you know, take care of it in some way. We come around the part that's hurting. We come around the part that's needy. We're tender and we're loving. We're not hard and standoffish. There's compassion. There's, there's generosity implied here in this word. And, and again, this is abnormal. <laughs> this is supernatural as God works in us to produce this in one another. When we think about it, where else should people be able to go for help with life? Where else should people be able to go Where where else should they turn than people that have the truth for what life is supposed to be like? Even as we suffer, even as hard things happen, I mean, how do we get through those with the truth of the the love of God? Well, how how does anybody else get through that? I don't know what the hope is. I don't know where they have hope. I don't know how they get through. They need to be able to come to us, and we need to be able to come to one another to help one another. So, Peter tells us holiness means a tender heart. Putting off the normal way of keeping away from people. It's a tender heart. Number five in verse eight. If we come back to the mind for this last of the standalone positive commands, it was it was mind, heart, 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 mind. <laughs> that's how that's how the progression is here. And none of these are exclusive to just the heart or the mind. It it, it infects and, and envelops both and for that matter our words and actions. But this one is is specifically, primarily a thought pattern in our mind. It's an attitude and a system of humility in our thinking. And we've talked about this even a a couple of weeks ago. It's not something you can manufacture in yourself. You can't make yourself become more humble, right? It's It's the automatic and proper response of beholding, encountering God when He's properly understood. You think about Job, and he was never as as humble as when God came to him and said, Job, here's who I am in chapters 38 to 42 of Job. That's when he was humble. (laughs) Sure, Job and his friends knew a lot about God, but they dismissed his goodness, and they they, they didn't think of him as eminent or caring. They just knew he was strong and powerful. That, you know, that was about it. But it was coming before God rightly understood the whole, as much as we can grasp of God. When we come and, and encounter him that way, that's when we're humble. It's coming to before the God of Isaiah. Not just chapter six, where he sees his own his own sinfulness and God's holiness. But Isaiah chapters forty through forty-eight, those are in your notes, so you can read through those. And the exaltation of God in those chapters will help to humble you and me before this God, the, the God who's over all other gods, the, the false gods out there, the idols, the, the mighty men, the forces of nature. That's who God is over and who is so powerful and yet caring and loving of His people. We come before that God, we fall before Him, and we're humble. If you want to know how to have a humble mind, fill your your mind not with thoughts of yourself, you know, how I've failed, how I've messed up, all the things I've done wrong. Fill your mind with the things of God. That will humble you, that will bring us low before Him, and that's a humble mind. This is not the world's advice, is it? I mean, this isn't something we're going to hear from the world. Humble yourself. Be humble in your mind. Why is it the mind? Well, obviously, because our mind controls our behavior. You know, it points back to chapter 1, verse 13. Our minds are ready. They're prepared for action. The mind that's lowly and humble directs our actions and words. And so, we, we, we get our minds right. We prepare our minds. And we do that by encountering God. And if it's true in our mind, it's going to come out of our words and our actions. So, so in our mind, we're thinking the same. In our in our feeling, we're feeling the same. We're we're tender hearted and compassionate. We're um, inside and outside. Oh, you know, over all all of the parts of us, every part of us is thinking and feeling the same ways toward Jesus and towards one another. And that's what holiness looks like in our life in the first five parts. Now, number six, verses nine through 12, we get the final trait, which is blessed retaliation. <laughs> blessed retaliation. In case we've been lulled to sleep, you know, all these, this abstract, these five abstract words and going through these and, and kind of what this looks like, breezing through the section, Peter gives us a wake-up call with this negative command. He says, do not do this. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling. And then He's going to give us the positive command right after without having to wait for it. But He kind of wakes us up. He says, remember, don't do any of that stuff from chapter 2. Don't do any of the evil or the reviling. Chapter 2 was our actions toward other people. Chapter 3, verses 8 through… eight, verse 8 was taking that, that same similar um, perspective there, our actions towards one another. Verse 9 here takes our reactions to people. This is where, you know, of course we shouldn't initiate any of that stuff. Of course we shouldn't be full of malice and envy and slander and all that. But now he's talking about our reaction. What happens when that stuff comes at you? It's directed at you. What do you do? Repaying is the word that's here. It's giving back what's owed. And we've talked about it before. There will be consequences. There will be God's righteous judgment for evil that's done. When somebody wrongs you, God will judge that in time, in His perfect timing but it's not for me to do. It's not for me to repay somebody. Don't do what others have done to you, right? Commentators debate about whether this is talking about inside the church or whether he's talking about outside the church, but brother or sister, would it matter? Does it matter who's doing it? Would that affect our action and our reaction to people, depending on whether they're a Christian or not? No, there, there's, no there's no difference in how we're called to act, how we're called to live, we're called to be holy. So, if somebody's giving me evil, if somebody, if somebody says to me the meanest thing they could ever say to somebody, what do I give them? If I can't give them evil back, if I can't give them reviling back, what do I do instead? Peter says, on the contrary, in the place of what you would normally do again, here's what's abnormal, bless them. Here's what's, here's what's supernatural, God working in you, blessing those, those people. This word bless is the word that we get the word eulogy from. It means speaking well of them. It means uh, blessing them, speaking well, invoking a praise and a a blessing on somebody else. So you're telling me when somebody's evil to me, when they're when they're tearing me down, I'm supposed to love them, I'm supposed to bless them, I'm supposed to speak well of them and think well of them and do them well, do them good? That's what God says. But do we grasp how impossible this is on our own strength? I'm sure you can. <laughs> I'm sure you can grasp that, how impossible this would be on your own. What, what does the world say instead? If, if somebody says something mean to you, if you don't have anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? That's the world's advice. Brother and sister, that's not far enough in holiness. That's not far enough for God's people. It's not just replace what's evil with nothing. Replace what's evil with blessings with what's good. That's not possible for us to drum up in ourselves. We can't do that on our own. We need the Lord's work in us. That's why we pray for that. That's why we study this. That's why we replace those thoughts with the evil thoughts with the good thoughts. You know, this is a, a real test of a person's faith in Jesus. How, how do you respond when, you're, when somebody treats you with contempt? You know, I you know, fight back. Anybody can do that but that's not Christian faith in action. That's not the Lord working in us because this is what we've been called to. This is our calling from God. Um, This is what God has for us in this world. It's been said that to return evil for good is animal-like. To return evil for evil is human-like. And to return good for evil is God-like. And that's who we're called to be like. That's who we're called to emulate, Jesus' example, our God and our Savior. But there's a promise for living in obedience to this. It's a promise of blessing that you may obtain or inherit a blessing. And this is the inevitable blessing, the inevitable promise that will happen. This is not a reward. I'm earning blessings from God. This is a part of what happens. As a Christian, I will grow in holiness and I will grow in blessing from God. it's It's a part of what happens in this life because of our good and gracious and merciful God. The blessing for us is the blessing of the Lord Himself. Peter quotes Psalm 34 in verses 10 through 12, and and we're not going to go through these verses with a fine-tooth comb, Lord willing. We can go through Psalm 34 and and see them together. But this is the text that he uses. He says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, if you're looking for the ways to, to enjoy this life, to have joy in life, It's not to be evil, but you keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Not chapter 2, verse 1. Let him turn away from evil and do good. It's not chapter 2, verse 1. It's chapter 3, verse 8, right? Let him seek peace and pursue it. We're, We're striving. We're working hard for peace with one another. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayer. The blessing that we get from obeying the Lord is the Lord. We get His presence, His attention, His eyes on us, His ears open when we pray and when we come to Him. He's all for us (laughs) in that sense. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. When you're blessed by the Lord, there's no better blessing. When you're cursed by Him, there's no worse curse. He's against those who are not following Him, who are not loving Him, who have not thrown away the things of this world for the things of the Lord. And it's only because we've received infinite mercy from God that we can experience that ourselves, that we can give it to other people. It's got nothing to do with whether anybody around us and deserves it. That's what we're called to. So, our application, how do we, how do we close out this, this passage this morning? What kinds of actions or words, as, as you hear this, as you see this in chapter 2, as you see it in chapter 3, what kinds of actions or words or feelings towards others or yourself do you need to put off? Do you need to throw out? The first part of our application is identify where you may be thinking, feeling, speaking, or acting normally. Erase the sinfully. If you were jumping ahead and you're like, I know what he's going to say. <laughs> the normally. You know, we're not talking about overtly sinful here. I mean, we are. That's included. <laughs> that's included also. But just what's normal, what's acceptable, what, what makes me comfortable in my progress to this point, Where I, what I'm okay with, get rid of that. Holiness is not what's normal and ordinary. It's what's God's best. If there's an area in your life where it's not God's best, it's not His holiness… We don't say, I've done enough. You know, I'm I'm close enough. Normal says, I've done enough. Holiness says, because of God's love for me, I'm going to love Him with all that I am. With all that I have, I could never do enough, not because I'm earning anything, but because I love Him so much, because He loved me so much. So identify those parts. In the next blank there, of course, repent. That means to turn away from all of that stuff. All of those actions and words and thoughts and feelings that I thought, you know, it's okay, it's not that bad. You know, I'm not killing anybody. I'm not committing adultery. I'm not, you know, the list of major sins. I'm putting away all of that. I'm returning away from ordinary and from normal. And I'm putting on these radically different characteristics. That's the third part. Put on love in your heart and in your mind. This kind of love, this radical kind of impossible love and that God blesses us with. This is God's best for us. This is the blessing, His presence with us, and His help through all of this. We put off sin, we put on His grace and His mercy, not just for salvation, but for holiness in our lives now. That's what God has for us. And it's impossible on our own, but we thank Him for His work in us to do that. Father, we praise You. We thank You, God. We give You all of the glory, all of the praise, Lord, for what You have already done in the life of each person here. Who knows you. God, we lift up the name of Jesus because He is lifted up. He is already the Lord. He is already the Savior. God, we praise Him. We praise You. Father, for our brothers and sisters, we thank You. We, we lift them up to You, God. I pray that You would show us how to better, better have a love for them. God, how to, how to be so close with one another that we feel what they're feeling, and we're able to rejoice together. We're able to sorrow together. God, we're able to grow in the truth of your word together. Lord, if there is someone here, if there are people here, Lord, who don't know you, who have never met the Lord Jesus Christ, have never submitted to him as Lord, as Savior, God, I pray that they would not leave without talking to one of us, without speaking with us so that we can bring them to him. God, I pray that that would be true in our life outside of these walls as well. Even more so, God, that we would be living this life of unity, of holiness, of love, Father. God, it glorifies you. It strengthens the bond we have. God, we praise you for that. We thank you. We ask all of this, not because we're worthy, but because Jesus is. In his name, amen.